Let's pray. Oh, God, what a beautiful, beautiful reminder that we are your children, and we're not home yet, not to the big home that one day you want to take us to, but some of us are not home with Jesus yet. We just don't feel at home yet. Oh, God, you know who she is. You know who he is. Love on him right now. And over these next moments, just, just keep, keep, keep loving on them. And speak to all of us before we cross the threshold into an incredibly new adventure on all three of our campuses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Okay, so one more Olympic story. Would that be all right? One more. This is the one you didn't see. I know you haven't seen this one. I just predicted. I wouldn't have even known about it except for the kindness of my friend Dwayne Kovrig, who sends me a video clip. I looked at that video clip, and I said, my, oh, my. I'd show the video clip right now, but it costs too much to buy the rights to show it for this broadcast. So you're just going to have to kind of feel the moment. But this is, this is nighttime in Tokyo Stadium, okay? The Olympic Stadium in Tokyo, the city of my birth. It's nighttime. They're having the high jumpers gold. Everybody's going for gold tonight in high jumping. I don't know if you've watched high jumping, but it is an incredible sport. Two of the finest high jumpers on the planet are here tonight in Tokyo. We're talking about the Qatari high jumper, Mutaz Essa Barshim, and the Italian high jumper, Gianmarco Tamberi. There are a host of others with them, but one by one, as they keep raising the bar, there he goes, there he goes. This is the men's high jump. There they go. And finally, we're down to us. to a height you cannot believe. It's 2.37 meters. You don't know how tall that is, but I'm going to give it to you in feet. That is 7 feet 9.3 inches into the air. So I'm 6. We'll add another foot. That's 7. Then you got to get 9.3 inches further up. And you're doing it from standing on sea level ground. You get one little run at it. And you throw yourself backwards. In fact, i got to show you a picture in case you don't know how, how uh, high jumping works. So there she is going over. This is the bar. It's very delicately balanced. You can barely touch it, and it'll stay. But if you touch it much, boom, it's over, and you fault it, and it's, that's it. They've been weeding through the uh, contestants. They are, now, they are now, as I mentioned, 2.37 meters, and both both. Barshim and Tamberi, both of them clear that bar. Nobody else now. It's just the two of them. So this is big deal. So the officials come, and they now raise the bar to, oh, my, uh, 2.39 meters. How tall is that, Dwight? Well, it's 7 feet 10 inches plus a hair. Oh, boy. These, these two young men, and they're as skinny as bean poles, but they, they, they have been living for this moment. They have been living. This is the goal. This is the goal, ladies and gentlemen. This is what you spend your life getting ready for. And Barshim gets to go first again, and he faults. They get three tries. He does two tries. He faults. Tom Betty goes, two tries. He faults, faults. Now it's one try left. Barshim goes, 
faults again. Ah, Don Betty knows he is the world champion high jumper if he can sail over the bar without touching it. And he throws everything into that young Italian heart of his, and he goes running, and he leaps, falls. The, officials, the official comes over. Now, I'm watching this on the clip, and the, the, uh, the, the mobile video cam is right there, and the official comes over, and he says, all right, he says, uh, you both have tied. We're going to have to have a runoff. And uh, it's Barshim who said, excuse me, can we both win the gold? And the official has a black mascot, so I'm trying hard to hear him, getting close to my phone to hear him. And, and, and the official says, finally, he thinks about it, if you both so decide. Bashim looks at Tamberi. Tamberi looks at Bashim. There is no word exchanged between them. But in the next split, split second, Tom Betty has leaped into the air, and he is now in the arms of Bashim, who's holding him like a little child, beanpole little child, and they are both yelling and whooping. He lets Tom Betty down. Tom Betty, the camera's just tra- dragging him right now, and he's running, he's running, and then he falls on the ground, and he, he starts crying. He's crying while he's laughing, and he's rolling over, and the camera's on him, and there's Bashim. He, he races over to his coach. He's the only one in the stadium. He gets over to the coach, and he bursts into tears. It's just one of those absolutely unforgettable Olympic moments. And it happened just a few weeks ago in Tokyo, Japan. Unforgettable. When two champions decide to split the gold, to share the gold, rather than try to win it solely for himself. Wow. Once upon a time, Jesus told a story about splitting the gold, and I want to share that story with you right now. So open your Bible to Matthew chapter 20. Come on, you got a Bible. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 20. I'll be in the New International Version. What a story behind us. What a story right in front of us. Matthew chapter 20. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Jesus speaking, red-letter story in my Bible. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. It is harvest time, and when the owner goes out early in the morning, 5.30, oh, he can smell the grapes. They are ready to be harvested. Hey, we live in a, we live in a, a grape vineyard valley ourselves. And in just a few weeks, the Concords, you're going to smell them all over this county. Oh, there's no greater smell. He said, all right, this is it, man. This is going to, this is going to be the harvest. So he jumps into his pick-em-up truck up and down the dusty, windy roads from the farm to the town at 6 a.m. Sure, sure enough, there they all are lining up, migrant workers who need to be, who would love to be employed today. So he rolls the window down. He says, yo, guys, you want to work? I'll pay you a denarius. That was the wage for a common laborer for one 12-hour day. I'll pay you a denarius. Come on, get in. We got grapes to pick. And that pickup truck is stuffed with workers as, he, as the uh, farmer drives back, and they fan out over the vineyard, and here come those luscious grapes down, 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 into the baskets, into the baskets. At 9 o'clock in the morning, the owner comes out. He sees the progress on the ground, and he says, man, oh, man, oh, man, we're not going to make it. I'm going to need more workers. He jumps into that same pickup truck. 
And here he goes. About nine in the morning, he went out. This is verse 3 of Matthew 20. He went out, Jesus said, and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Hey, he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you for whatever. I will pay you whatever is right. Three hours later, the owner goes back. It's noon. There is no way, Jose, that this is going to get picked unless I get more workers. Bam, he goes back into town. There they are. He says, come on, guys, get in, get in. I got work to do. That same routine happens at 3 o'clock. That same routine happens at 5 o'clock. One hour until sunset. We are going to make it unless I get more help. Back into town he goes. All right, Jesus says, about 5 in the afternoon, that, that earnest and desperate vineyard owner, he went out and he found still others standing around and he asked him, hey, boys, why have you been standing here all day and all day long you've been doing nothing? Well, because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and you work in my vineyard. And so these, these workers come back and hallelujah with that last truckload of laborers. Just as the sun goes down, it's a 12-hour day, just as the sun goes down, the harvest is done. Hallelujah. So the workers are all milling around the farmhouse now. They're waiting for payroll. Come on, we worked hard today, please. And, and finally, the landowner, land he grabs the, his account and he says, listen, I want you to go out. I want you to do this. I want you to do this, okay? I want you to start with the guys that came, the 5 o'clock guys, and take the payroll all the way back. Please? Okay. So the accountant gets out, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, this is just Jesus' corroboration, that proof that Dwight's not making it up, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and go, going on to the first. So the accountant puts that little metal safe box Flips it open. He says, all right, fellas, step on up, step on up. Payroll starts right now. Hey, guys, you guys that came at 5 o'clock, step on up. We're going to start with you today, and we'll work, we're, we'll work our way backwards, if that's okay with you. And so those 5 o'clock workers, they've worked one hour. They step up, and the accountant slides a denarius across the, uh, the little table. A denarius. Their eyes pop out. Their smiles are from ear to ear. You understand? They just got paid for 12 hours of work, and they only put in one hour. Oh, my. They are rejoicing. And, and the, the, uh, the full 12-hour guys are in the back of the line, and they just saw that. And they're going, you're not going to believe this. They, the first guy's got a denarius. We're going to get 12, 12 denarii. Oh, they can hardly wait to get to the front. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And finally, they come to the front. The accountant says, come on, guys. Thank you very much, by the way, for your 12 hours. Well done. Here is the, the denarius that you agreed. Each step forward, please, and take it. They don't go quite postal, but they are furious you can't tell me. Well, we'll let Jesus uh, tell us what happens. And when they received that denarius, they began to grumble. They began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And it's but he, the owner, obviously has stepped out. He hears this little ruckus going on. But he answered one of them, so it must be the spokesman of the 12-hour guys. Hey, 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 yo, 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 yo. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. The owner's not mad at anybody. He's not trying to be cruel. 
I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm not being unfair to you, my friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Well, yeah. Well, then take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Cha-ching! Are you envious because I am generous? I, I just love that line. To me, it's strikingly beautiful. Do you ever think of God as, as just the most generous being in the whole universe? The maker of all things loves and wants me. That God. You couldn't get more generous than this. Whether you've known God and you've worked for him all your life or whether you just came to him recently and have worked for him for only an hour, it doesn't matter to him. Do you know why it doesn't matter to him? I'll tell you why it doesn't matter to him, because everyone is called. That's why. Everyone is called. This theme for fall fellowship here at Andrews University, this theme for the faculty, staff, and administration of Andrews University and Andrews Academy and Ruth Murdoch Elementary School, what a theme. Whoever picked it, you go. Everyone is called. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you've been working here forever or you're a Johnny come lately. Everyone is called. And by the way, listen, listen. Everyone splits the gold. You split the gold. You get the same amount. Have mercy. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. This generous, generous God. Yeah, but do I? Come on, come on. Unpack this. I mean, please, what does this mean? Everyone is called. Well, let me read to you another parable. I, I know you've never heard this one. All right? So this is a parable written by Michael Zigarelli, and it appeared in the Journal of Research in Christian Education. And it goes like this. May I read it in your hearing? Once upon a time, God created a nation. That would be the United States of America. Once upon a time, God created a nation and seeded it with 4,146 institutions. And last night I found out that the number now is 6,502 institutions of higher learning, universities, colleges, seminaries, and other post-secondary schools. Why did he seed a nation? Ah, God did it to teach his children truth and how to apply it rightly. But... Some of these institutional seeds fell on a path and were stolen by birds before they could ever take root. And some of the seeds fell on rocks and sprang up, but, went, but then withered for lack of moisture. And other seeds grew amongst thorns and were choked to death before they could flourish. And some of God's seeds, though, fell on good soil and took root and grew strong, yielding a harvest 100 times what was planted. What is he talking about? He goes on. Let me follow Jesus' lead and explain the parable. Okay, here comes the explanation now. The schools on the path that the ravens picked up are those that were founded as secular institutions, schools stolen away from God at their nascence and that have never attempted to educate people from God's point of view. The schools on the rocks are those church-related or historically Christian schools that were founded to honor God and that pursued this, pursued this mission for a while, but whose weak roots caused the original mission to die. Now they are indistinguishable from secular schools. 
And the schools amongst the thorns are those Christian schools that still have an overtly Christian mission statement, but whose mission has been choked out by many factors. Fear that they will lose prospective students if they are too overtly Christian. Faculty trained in secular schools who cannot or will not teach from a Christian perspective. Open admissions policies that culminate in a highly secular student culture, and so on. The thorns are as diverse as they are deadly. Then there are the schools planted in good soil, Christian institutions fully committed to honoring God in all they do, where there is a primacy of spiritual formation and education from a Christian perspective, and where faculty members endeavor to teach and write from the same posture. As a result, these institutions develop students' heart and minds toward the goal of graduating students who are more like Jesus than when they first enrolled. The legions of alumni from these good soil schools are in their various vocations, serving people and leading change in ways that please God, as are the faculty through their scholarly, popular press, artistic, volunteer, and practitioner work. Indeed, these schools are yielding a harvest 100 times what God sowed. The end. Hmm. Hmm. Two parables. Jesus' parable that reminds us everyone is called. And Ziggarelli's parable that reminds us that everyone is called to mission. In fact, if we went back to Jesus' parable, we'd find out that's precisely the point of his. Two parables teaching us That when you're called by the master of the vineyard, you are called to work with him in his vineyard. That's what it means to be called. You share his mission. Yes, you are, Jesus says. Yes, I'm talking to you, boy. I'm talking to you, girl. Yes, you are called, but it is to help me finish my harvest in my vineyard. Now, here's the question. What is this this Michael Ziggarelli really trying to tell us? Well, let's let's let him speak for himself. God entrusts students to his universities, his universities. And I like that word entrust, by the way. In a few hours, this place is going to be crawling with students. They've already been coming in. But I like that, that notion. God entrusts. Any student who comes here has been entrusted by God to this institution. God entrusts students to his universities and calls. Well, I like that word calls because everyone is called. We're reminding ourselves. And calls the trustees administrators, faculty, and staff to be faithful stewards to equip students to serve with excellence in the vocation to which God calls them." End quote. Wow. He goes on, by the way. It is the role of the Christian university to graduate people who love what God loves and as such are increasingly becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, look, at I go out before the service begins, both services, and I kind of circulate around, and I know we have parents who are here with their freshman children sitting beside them right now. And I can't, can't think, I've met some of you, I can't think a parent, think of a parent here who would say, no, no, I don't, I don't care if a, if a university has that kind of a, a, an ambition. Are you kidding? There's an parent alive that doesn't say, no, that's it. That's it right there. That's why we're sending our children to Andrews University, because of that. You're going to graduate students who love what God loves and as such are increasingly becoming like Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Are we kind of scratching our mind? Well, maybe that's not what we... No, of course. But Ziggarelli pushes a bit harder. 
when he describes the challenge of a faith-based university like ours, the challenge we face. Here we go. These are his words. There are those Christian schools that still have an overtly Christian, I'm going to say Adventist, all right, an overtly Adventist mission statement, but whose mission has been choked out by many factors. Fear that they will lose prospective students if they're too overtly Christian, too Adventist. Back off just a little. Hmm. Faculty trained in secular schools who cannot or who choose not to teach from a Christian Adventist perspective. Hmm. Open admissions policies that culminate in a highly secular student culture, and so on. Whoa. Hey, listen. I've lived around here long enough, just long enough to know that we cannot help on this campus. We cannot help but feel the pressures, the, the pressures rather, from an essentially godless and secular culture out there that America has become. A culture that rules the day in much of academia today. It rules the day in much of career building today, much of socialization, much of entertainment in an essentially godless and secular culture. I understand that. We're, we're, it, there's a sea around us. I also understand that it is tough. <laughs> it is tough when you deal with a generation that doesn't seem to enjoy reading anything lengthy or reasoned, that prefers sound bites the size of social media posts for its education and struggles to find a way to even read Scripture, let alone apply it to life and lifestyle. Trust me, you're not the only one deal, dealing with them in your classes every Sabbath. So what do we do now? Ah, but everyone is, everyone is called means. Here's the good news. Everyone is called means that we all share. It's not on your shoulders alone. It's not on my shoulders alone. It's not on anybody's shoulders alone. We all share the mission of Christ to help God connect with this generation. God is so... He is so excited about Gen Zers. He just loves them to death. Gen Zers. This is, this is, he said, guys, I'm entrusting you the best on the planet. Wow. Everyone is called. And by the way, by the way, everyone means everyone. Huh? Everyone means everyone. We're talking about that smiling cafeteria worker. God bless her. We're talking about that friendly custodial, custodial employee. God bless him. We're talking about that wonderfully helpful library assistant. God bless them all. Everyone means everyone. You know why? It means we are all called. I don't care where you are. Not just the tenured professors, not just the department chairs. Not just the C-suite leaders on the third floor of the ad building. We are all called. Right? You're thinking, oh, this is a trick. I'm not going to say yes. There's no trick here. We are all called by the Lord himself, the master of the vineyard, who himself declares, you know, he says this in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 10. He says, listen, even if you have a student on this campus and the student comes your way and you're in a staff position out on the periphery somewhere and that student says, man, I'm, I'm just dying of thirst, and you give him a drink of water, Jesus says, you are going to be rewarded one day for that act of, of courtesy and compassion. 
Everybody shares the gold. (laughs) They're not different medals for where you serve on this campus. Everybody shares the gold, splits the gold. Because why? We are all called. Speaking of worldview, Zigarelli writes, a Christian worldview emphasizes that God has a particular point of view about sociology. Yep. God has a particular point of view about law, a particular point of view about accounting and so forth. And God invites us to embrace that view. He has revealed it through both the special revelation of his word. That's why the Bible is where it is in this university. And the general revelation of our study of creation. For example, our science discoveries. This is all a part of a strategy to lead a transformed life to Jesus. So in any given class or chapel or student affairs, or we'd say student life program or athletic contest, the leaders inter... Let me try that again. I haven't graduated yet. The, The leader's integration... The leader's integration task is to bring together these two types of revelation in pursuit of one unified truth. Come on. To teach a theology of nursing. Did you understand? There's a, is there a theology of nursing? Yep. To teach a theology of political science. To teach a theology of resolving roommate conflict. A theology of sportsmanship. This practice is primary to the role of renewing minds, and it is a role that significantly differentiates the most effective Christian, and I'm saying Adventist school from all the others. Is this guy making any sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he makes this stunning point, and it's so stunning. I, I find it controversial. When I read it, I said, nah, that's not true. That's not true. It's taken me a while. I've kind of brooded over it, reflected on it. Oh, he's probably right. Here it is. Mounting relativism and a socially reinforced readiness to ignore God. So anything goes, that's the culture. And just listen, just forget, ignore God. Don't worry about it. Mounting relativism and a socially reinforced readiness to ignore God make it more urgent than ever to develop influential ambassadors of the faith. I love that. That's what our students become once they come here. Now, he describes them, influential ambassadors of the faith, people of excellency and integrity, students who will be thought leaders, culture shapers. We call them world changers, don't we? Compassionate servants and living witnesses who inspire others to return to God. Now, so far, so good. Do you have any, any, you have any problem with this? Nobody has any problem at all. Here comes the controversial line. Just a sentence. None of God's other institutions, all right? So none of God's other institutions, he's going to say, can do it like we do it. Ooh. None of God's other institutions, not the family, not the local church. Whoa, whoa, time, time out, time out, time out. What do you mean not the local church? Don't you understand? I heard this from Bill Hybels. Don't you understand that the local church is the largest organization, the most influential organization on this planet, composed totally of volunteers? Don't you tell me that the, the local church is not influential. He said, calm down, calm down, calm down. Notice, how I've, notice what I said before. To develop influential ambassadors of the faith, people of excellency, 
and integrity who will be thought leaders, culture shapers, world changers, compassionate servants, and living witnesses who inspire others to return to God. He says, I stand by my point. None of God's other institutions, not the family, not the local church, not the media, and not the state, are better positioned than this university to fulfill this role right now. This university, I don't know if you're picking up on this, but this university has a high, high calling. And there's no other institution on this planet that can do what God has called this university to do, what this academy to do, Ruth Murdoch to do. It doesn't matter. And then the little lady, the American writer that raised up our predecessor, Battle Creek College. And then in 1900, 1901, he said, listen, move down, move down to Bering Springs. Build something down there. We'll just give up uh, where we were here. Ellen White, she agrees with Zigarelli. Watch this. A sacred influence should go forth from our college. Okay, so she's talking about Battle Creek. Should go forth from our college to meet the moral darkness existing everywhere in this sea of godless godlessness in the, the secular culture, I saw that it, our college, would be one of the greatest means ordained of God for the salvation of souls. That's it. Nobody can do it like you. Don't you let anybody, don't you let a parent, don't you let a trustee member, don't you let nobody tell you that you are not positioned to do what no one else can do. Everyone in this institution is called to do what nobody can do quite like this. Wow. In other words, here's where we're going. God has positioned our three campuses to have maximal kingdom influence on the students that are descending upon us in just a few hours. Maximal kingdom influence. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is better positioned to fulfill God's role than this university. And everybody that makes this university what it is, the administration, the faculty, the staff, nobody, nobody can make the difference that God is calling us to make. Come work for me, Jesus says. You come work with me, for me, in my vineyard. You do understand, you do understand this is the highest mission anybody can have on this planet? Do you understand that? It's the highest mission. And you got it, because everybody is called. Some of the manuscripts for uh, Matthew chapter 20 end Jesus' parable with a sentence newer translations have omitted. That's okay. Because as it turns out, Jesus uses that same sentence in, in Matthew chapter 22. And all translations carry this sentence. And you know the sentence well, so I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Everybody knows this. Many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. I heard a preacher once get up and preach on this very text, and he said, many are called, but a few are frozen. He said, some churches are so cold that you can ice skate down the center aisle. <laughs> That's not this church. That's not this campus. Oh, maybe sometimes we get frozen. We get frozen out of our mission, but hey. No, Jesus said, many are called, 
but few are chosen. What are you saying, Lord Jesus? And he says, here's what I mean. Not everybody I call says yes to my call. That's the deal. Oh. Jesus did. He said yes to God's call. You know where it ended him up? On a cross. Can you believe that? The master of the vineyard is nailed to a tree outside the camp. And when he is begging for water, all they give him is stale grape vinegar to slake his thirst. The master of the vineyard gets five-day-old grape vinegar. Yep. But that same master of the vineyard, who now with nail scars forever and ever says, I've called you, I've called you, I've called you, I've called you. Everyone is called. And I'm begging you, please, say yes to my call. Many are called, but few are chosen. Why did he do it? To save the likes of you and me, of course. He came to seek and save the lost. He wants to save the entire planet. If he can find a way, he will save the entire planet if the entire planet says yes to him. So he invites us to do the same. Go to the cross for my mission. Join my mission. Work beside me. Pray the prayer, Jesus, help me this new year. Some, some kid's going to walk into my, my space. Some kid's going to walk into my space. Help me to know if that's the one you need me to lead, point to you. Just give me just enough presence of mind to be myself and just love on them. And then let them know I'm loving you because Jesus loves you. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm here this year to help you get to know him. To help you do that with your students who are soon to step into your space, this year we're bringing in a young preacher. I'm pretty excited about this. His name is Richie Halverson. He's a great preacher. He's coming in here, and the theme of his week with us from October 1 through October 10, two Sabbaths, he'll be in this pulpit. Here's his theme. The darkness will not overcome. The guy has a story to tell, but it is out of his experience that he has a testimony to share that will help other young lives come to Jesus. Some of you say, well, you know, I'm just not really real good about talking about Jesus with my students. That's fine. Send your students to Richie Halverson Friday, October 1 in this space. And let somebody help you. That's why we exist. Everyone is called. Everyone doesn't have to preach. Everyone doesn't have to teach. But everybody's called. All of us. Let's say yes to Jesus.